0: Today on the show, we are answering a whole stack of listener questions that were submitted in the Facebook community, and oh my goodness, this is going to be a big episode. We're covering how do you know when it's the right time to leave your job, making a big career change, and getting unstuck in your job. Plus, we'll be talking about getting into leadership and how to talk about transferable skills on your resume and cover letter. Buckle up. Let's do it. This is a podcast about making work, work. You'll learn about leadership, career growth, and how to navigate those weird work challenges. I run a HR consulting business called Boldside, where I help leaders build epic team cultures. If you lead a team or run a business and you think I can help, let's connect on LinkedIn. My name is Shelley Johnson, and this is Work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. All right, Daniel has asked this question. He said, I never realized exactly how stressed and overworked I was until I left and got employment elsewhere. But how do you know when enough is enough and when is it the right time to take the plunge? I didn't realize how big a rut I was in until I climbed out of the mud. Daniel, thank you for asking this question. I think a lot of our listeners are going to relate to this, that sometimes you get so immersed into an environment that you don't realize until it's gone on for a really long time that it's not a healthy place to be. And I think there's a few signs, and I'm going to split these up into two categories. There are signs that you need to take the plunge and leave that are more obvious. So they're glaringly obvious warning signs. And then there's some more subtle signs. So I'm going to split it up. I'm going to start with the like really obvious ones to begin with. And then I'm going to get to the ones that maybe are early warning flags that a lot of people tend to miss. So a couple of signs that it's time to take the plunge. It's when you are working in an environment where there's very limited support. So people can work in high stress environments for an extended period when they have the support. So think about like professional athletes work in high stress, high pressure, high stakes environments where their contract is continually being renewed or considered for renewal. One of the things though that they have to be able to work in that pressure is that there's a lot of support systems built in. So they have physiotherapists, they have psychologists, they have coaches, they have assistant coaches, they have trainers, like they have all this support network in order to manage the high stress that comes with a gig. But if you're in an environment like Daniel describing, you're feeling constantly overworked and constantly stressed, you need to kind of check and go, okay, what are the support networks I have? Is there any support available? Now, sometimes this is what happens for people. There is support available. They're just not using it. So your manager, do they know that you need support? Because that's your first step. you got to go and check in and go, okay, is there support available? And if so, what? And am I using that to the best of my ability? Because a lot of times people simply answer straight away, no, there's no support. I'm like, well, have you had conversations about what you feel like you need? Have you talked to your manager about the challenges that you're having? That's step one. So do that assessment of what is the support available? Am I taking it up? And if the answer to those questions is, there isn't any support, like genuinely, then that's your first alarm bell warning sign that it might be time to leave. The second sign is being consistently undervalued or unvalued. What this looks like is that there's very limited recognition, positive feedback, encouragement, support. Now, when you're in an environment that's high stakes, high stress, high pressure, all those kind of things, it's really important that you have the support, firstly, and then secondly, that you have this sense of unvalued here, I'm kind of seen and heard and understood. Because I think that is the essence of it. Like feeling valued is feeling like people respect my opinion. They want me to contribute and I'm recognized for my contributions. Now, I just want to give a little caveat to this to just create some balance. I'm not saying that every day you walk in and someone gives you, you know, like a gold star for your efforts. Like you're obviously paid to do a job. So there's that. <laughs> but I think it's that feeling when you're somewhere, especially when you're working really, really hard and you're, you feel like you're overworking as Daniel described, but it's going unnoticed or unappreciated and it starts to feel like more of a transactional relationship. So to me, that's kind of another sign when you've got lack of support and you feel consistently undervalued or unnoticed. The third sign is a lack of purpose or growth. So I kind of combine these two because I think when you feel like you're growing, that gives you a sense of purpose. But let's say you've been in the role a while and you know everything there is to know about being an accountant. So maybe like the growth thing isn't being ticked, but you still have a sense of purpose. So inherent in the work is this feeling of like, I'm contributing to something that matters. I'm part of something that's really important. And I really like the work that we get to do. If you don't have any sense of growth or purpose, that again to me is another obvious red flag that it's time to probably look at moving on. So those would be my top three, lack of support, consistently undervalued and a lack of purpose and growth. Now let's like start, we've done the, the obvious signs. I want to talk about the subtle ones. So the first subtle sign I see when people are like like stuck And they should leave, but they, for whatever reason, don't leave, would be when they start downplaying concerns or making excuses for things that normally would be a bit of a deal breaker. I was talking to someone the other day and they were telling me about their work environment. And I just started to notice that every time they would tell me about an issue, they'd be like, but look, you know what? It's not that bad. Or look, you know, it could be worse somewhere else. And I kind of fell in this conversation. I'm like, oh, you're really downplaying those concerns. Like, do they not matter that much? And as that person kind of, we started to have this conversation was like, oh yeah, no, these are really important things to me. And i like, so why do you keep downplaying them or excusing them? And I think this is just a natural reaction that we have when we're forced to make a difficult decision is that in order to avoid the pain of the difficult decision we have to make, we stay in the pain of our current environment. So there's pain with making a difficult decision to leave. So then we go, okay, I don't want to have that pain over there. So I'm just going to choose to have this crappy pain here in my current work situation. And that means anytime something comes up that really irritates me, I'm going to downplay it or excuse it as being not that bad. And so we start to try and like sell ourselves that, you know what, it's okay. I can still stay. This is all good. So the downplaying of concerns is one of the subtle signs. If you start to hear that in your internal narrative, when you see something in the work culture that really kind of bothers you, do some self-reflection on that. That's really important. The next sign is When you feel like you're obsessively proving yourself, this is one of the stages in the burnout process. So if you're in an environment that is high pressure and you feel like you're stuck in a cycle of obsessively proving yourself, we need to take a step back and go, okay, firstly, who am I proving myself to? Is it the boss? Is it the CEO? Is it my team? Is it the person who got the job that I really wanted and I'm trying to prove myself to them? Or probably most commonly, we're trying to prove ourselves to ourselves, And I want you to ask yourself, okay, what am I trying to prove? And what will make me feel worthy? Because often there's nothing that we can put on that list that will make us feel like, okay, now I can stop proving myself. I've made it. (laughs) Because we get stuck in that cycle. It's kind of like this like addictive cycle we get caught up in of now that I've started to develop this habit, I don't know how to break out of it. I don't know what it will take for me to feel worthy or good enough. And so maybe that's the question you need to ask yourself, what will make me feel good enough? And start to write down the answers because those answers might be pretty confronting. You might find that, well, I can't really list out enough things that will make me feel good enough. And that's where we start to go, okay, well, why is that? Is that a product of the environment that I'm in? Is that a product of my own kind of headspace and perspective? It could also be a culture that's ingrained within the business that you're in. If you've seen lots of people kind of burn out, again, maybe not that subtle sign that it's not a great workplace to be in. So I think that that proving yourself question is a really important one. And if you're trying to prove yourself to a boss who, like we said before, might not be supporting you or might not be valuing you, well, then you really need to take a good look at that and go, what is this person's opinion, someone that I really care about? Like, why am I placing so much weight on this? So again, these are those kind of earlier warning signs that I think a lot of us miss. And the last one that I think is probably the most hard to spot is when it's like mediocre. It's like, it's okay. Like, it's not that great. It's okay. I I had a phone call with someone the other day, one of the people that I work with, and we were chatting and I'm like, how are you? And he was like, I'm okay. I'm fine. I'm good. Well, I don't know. I mean, I keep talking. I'm fine. I'm fine. And like, just like... It was like this rambly thing of like, I'm okay. I think I'm okay. Maybe I'm fine, but maybe I'm not. But oh my gosh, what am I saying? (laughs) It was one of those things where you're like, oh, okay. So if we get into it, like, are you really okay? And as we had this conversation, we realized, yeah, things are pretty tough and things are pretty difficult. It's kind of similar to that making excuses and downplaying concerns, but the it's okay. It's not great. To me, I think everyone should be in an environment where it is great. I'm not saying that like every single day of the week, you should walk into work and be like, this is so great. But on balance, if you looked at your year, you have more good days than bad days, or you have more great days than okay days. And there are so many epic workplaces out there that offer that kind of culture and that kind of employee experience. And I, I really want every person listening to be able to find that environment and find that career path where they get that sense of, okay, on balance, this is a really great place to be. Or on balance, I'm doing great things in the job that energize me and they give me a sense of purpose. So if you're in that kind of zone of like, it's okay, it's not that great, but it's okay. Or it'll do. That would be one of the subtle signs. I think I've said it before, but back when I used to go out as an 18 year old, there was this pickup line going around that was like, you'll do. And like, people would walk up to someone and be like, you'll do like, this is absolutely the worst thing you could ever say. It was obviously a bit of a joke, but we do this at work all the time where we're like in an environment and we're like, you'll do not that great. It's okay. At best. It's mediocre. And I just think, don't settle for mediocre. I want you to find that environment that is energizing and rewarding and helps you to thrive and grow. And it's going to challenge you. And there will be stress but the stress that you experience is what we've talked about before. You stress, the good stress, E-U-S-T-R-E-E, Ew, can't spell. You, you know, you've listened to previous episodes. You stress, Google it. <laughs> Don't listen to it. I'm spelling it though. I want you to experience that. And so like Daniel said, knowing when enough is enough First, we need to pay attention to the subtle signs. And then secondly, we need to look for any of those glaringly obvious signs. But before you make any move, and this is my final point on this, before you make any move, have a conversation with your manager about what you're finding challenging. Because I think it's really important for any boss, and most bosses will want to know where you're at, to have this discussion of going, hey, I'm feeling stressed and overworked, or hey, I'm feeling this. Is there any support available to help me navigate these challenges? And I think about healthy relationships have difficult conversations like that all the time. And your boss might just be blissfully unaware. And if it was me and it was one of my team members, I would want to know that because I'd want to be able to have a chance to fix it before they left because I don't want to lose good people. So that's my final word on Daniel's question. When is it time to take the plunge? All right. Michael says... How do I work out what I want to do? I want to change my career, but I feel paralyzed to make a decision. I don't want to invest into making the wrong choice again. I read the careers book, but I still feel stuck. Oh, Michael, I feel you. That stuck feeling. I remember a few years back having that sense of I'm stuck, like I'm trapped in this job that wasn't right for me. And I was sitting in a Mexican restaurant with two of my really close friends and was like, I... I'm stuck. And I remember saying those words and I was like tearing up at the table over like margaritas and tacos and just like sitting there being like, oh my gosh, I'm so stuck. And I didn't know what to do. But there's a cool thing in those stuck moments that if you feel like this right now, wherever you're at, you have a choice. And for me, I was choosing to be stuck. Like I was so terrified of making the wrong decision of doing something different and new and leaving this job that I was like, I'm just going to stay here where I am and feel trapped and stuck. And so in that moment, I was like, okay, I'm making a choice right now and it's not a good one and I hate where I'm at. But the fear of failure, the fear of making a wrong decision was exactly what Michael's describing, paralyzing. So it's like, okay, well, I am going to choose to just stay where I am but I always like to fast forward. And for me, one of the things when you're making tough career decisions, fast forward. So let's say you take Michael, no action and you stay where you are in a year's time. What will that look like? And when we fast forward and you imagine yourself in the same spot in a year's time and realize, oh my gosh, I'm going to be in the same spot, but the issues will have compounded. My resentment towards the place that I'm at will have built up over that time. So the only place for me to go in this environment is to become more miserable, more stuck, more trapped. So then rewind to where you are right now and go, okay, stuck is a choice. And that might be hard to hear. It was certainly something that when I had that kind of moment of like, oh, I'm making a choice here, then I felt like I had some agency. So I was like, okay, I'm choosing to stay here. Am I comfortable with that choice? If I fast forward a year's time, imagine myself still here, how will I feel? And I was like, no, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not happy staying where I'm at. And the fear of failure and making a wrong career move is not as strong as the fear of still being here and feeling the same in a 12 months' time. So what I want to do, I want to talk about, okay, well, what do you do then? So if you're in this spot, you're like, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do next. There's a couple of steps and I want you to see this as a process. So when we see it as a process rather than the single most critical decision you ever have to make in your career, we take the weight out of it and we kind of make it like, okay, I just got to follow the next step in the process. Because when you're making a career move and a career transition, we just put so much pressure on that decision and that's where we get stuck because we're like, oh my gosh, if I don't make the right move, I'll forever be in a terrible environment, terrible job for the rest of my career. And we know that's not true. So a couple of things, Michael, number one, the first step in the process, if you need to make a career change is do your research. So it's the research phase. So this is where I want you firstly start by talking to a whole stack of people in different areas that kind of pique your interest. Look for the spark of curiosity. Tia Angelos came on the podcast a while back and she said this amazing thing about going to a bookshop and What areas of the bookshop pique your interest? So, do that. Like, start thinking, okay, what is of interest to me? That's your research phase. Do a job preview. So, once you kind of narrow it down, let's say you're a graphic designer, but you're really interested in tech and you'd love to become eventually a software developer. Okay, cool. I want to learn how to code. Then, I want you to do a job preview. So, find a way to work alongside someone who does the thing that you're interested in and see what their day-to-day looks like. It's kind of like shadowing them for a day. Your job preview is really important. I want you to find a way to do that. It's like, you know, when you go to the movies, you see the previews, you see the trailers and you start to get a sense of, okay, what movie might I want to see next? Your job preview is that. I want you to do that for a couple of different roles that might interest you. And then I want you to step back. So let's say you're a graphic designer, but you want to get into software development. Then talk to those people. You've done your job preview. You realize, yeah, that looks really interesting to me. I'm keen to give it a go. Talk to them about how they got into that particular role. So let's say maybe they started out on IT support before they eventually got into software development. So how might you take a step back and start at an earlier step to progress? So, you do your research, you talk to people in the industry, you do your job preview. And there's a couple of other things I want you to do in the research phase at the same time. You need to find out what your strengths are. So, what are your strengths? What are the things that you're uniquely good at? Do the strengths finder, the Clifton strengths finder assessment to work that out. Because knowing your strengths means that you can assess any role that comes up against those and go, okay, am I going to be using those? I was talking with someone the other day who was in a finance role. So they're in accounts payable and the role was all execution based, but all of their strengths were relationship building strengths. And they hated the role that they were in. It's no surprise that you don't like it because all your strengths are about people, relationships, building rapport, building connection. And you're in a role that is primarily about execute the next thing. And there's not a lot of like people interaction. So we need to assess our strengths against the role that piques our interest. Okay, okay, cool. Do these things align? And then the last thing I just want to say, and this is just more of a mindset thing, is don't focus so much on your passion, focus on your strengths. In the sort your career book, I talk about, I love cooking. Like I love cooking. I like having a glass of wine while I'm like making something delicious. So that's something I'm passionate about, but does that mean I should I, I should become a chef? No. I would be a terrible chef because I don't like the idea of working split shifts and also like the high pressure environment and having all these hospo customers to look after. Not for me. But that doesn't mean I don't love cooking. Like I love food. I love experiencing fine dining. I love all that stuff. That's one of my passions. But that doesn't mean I should pursue a career as a chef. And I want you to think about, are you pursuing a passion project? So going back to that example of like, if you want to move from graphic design to software development, look at do I have the strengths mixed to align with that? not just the passion for the particular career. Because when you follow your strengths, you will perform better, you'll be more engaged, you'll be happier, all those things. So the passion kind of myth, that's something that Cal Newport talks about in his book, So Good They Can't Ignore You. His whole argument in that book is don't follow your passions. Follow the thing that you're really good at. So become really exceptional at something. So I want you to look at, okay, what are your strengths? Then you do all that research into job preview, talk to people who are working in the area that interests you and find out how did they get started? What was the stepping stone process for them? And then the last thing is assess your strengths, forget the passion and follow your strengths. All right. Step number two in the career change process is the test phase. And the test phase is this whole idea of like test and learn think the reason, going back to Michael's question of feeling paralyzed, the reason we do feel paralyzed is because we think we have to get it right on the next go and that this is the career we're going to be in for the next 10 years. And that is such high pressure to be under. It's like, okay, if I leave this job that I'm in right now that I don't like, I have to land my dream job the next time. And I'm a firm believer in there is no such thing as dream jobs. The dream job rhetoric has been messing with our careers for so long because it's like, this idea of the one, the one like true love that you find, like the one job that will satisfy you above all others. And I just think, no, that's unreasonable. It's an unreasonable expectation to place on yourself and on your career. So instead have this view of, okay, I'm going to test and learn some things and I'm going to do this and I might do it for 12 months. or I might do it for six months and get a vibe of if this is right. And if it's not, I'm going to pivot and do something else. People are having between five to 15 careers now. So back in the day, people had a career for life. People were teachers for life. That's not the case anymore. So I want you to give yourself the freedom to test and learn. See it as a process of going, okay, I'm going to try this next thing and I'm going to evaluate and then I'm going to change if it's not right. And if you're worried about what that looks like on your resume, I feel you because that is a genuine concern for a lot of people. I guess my, my advice would be so many more people are doing this now. Like people are having career changes all the time now. So you're not alone in this experience. And what I would also say is it becomes how you communicate this stuff. So I would like in an interview talk about it in like a fun way of going, you know what, this is where I went through my career change process and I was testing and learning and I was like treating it as a, a research phase and a test phase. And I went through all these different things to figure out what are my strengths? What am I good at? And this is where I've landed. So talk about it in a way that sells it as a positive, not as something that you need to kind of like cover up. Cause I think people feel like they need to cover up this stuff. Like, Oh, I was indecisive about my career. No, you were testing out some things. You were building your experience. You were learning what you were good at. And that is only, I think, a plus to a new employer. But instead of like trying to gloss over it, sell it as a benefit. Like sell it as something that you bring that different people won't have. Like if you've moved from graphic design to software development, you can bring totally different stuff to people who've only come through from that software development angle. Like you bring something new to the table that other people don't have. So in the interview and in the recruitment process, don't gloss over it. Talk about it as an advantage, So step one, research phase. Step two, test phase. And step three, evaluate phase. I like to set timelines. So if you try something, give yourself a timeline and try to stick to it. And this is the discipline. So when I left that stuck job, I had a few things in my mind that I was like, I was stuck in this job. Wasn't right for me. Really didn't like it. I was pretty miserable. And then I gave myself I had a career break for about, I don't know, four months and I gave myself time and space to figure it out. Now, I know not everyone has that luxury and it was a privileged spot to be in, so I want to say that. What I would say, if you are making a change, you move from one job to the next job and it's like the career kind of pivot, set yourself a timeline and go, okay, I'm going to stick at this for 12 months. If you could just stick at it for 12 months and then evaluate, I think most people can do a lot of things for 12 months. Like it goes quick. That one year goes quick. If you give yourself a timeline. So for me, I left the job and I went and started my business. I had that four months gap to kind of really envision, okay, what do I want my career to look like? What do I want the business to look like? And then I started and I said in 12 months time, I just want to break even on my previous salary. Like that was it. It was just like this one goal in mind. I'm going to do 12 months and I'm going to see if I can like hit the salary goal that I had in mind and then evaluate. And so I just went, okay, that's what I'm doing, 12 months, give myself a timeline. And I did all that and way more and it blew all my expectations. But just having a like baseline, okay, here's the amount of time I'm going to do before I evaluate. So I just went, I've got to get to this 12-month milestone and then I'm going to do the deep reflection on, okay, how did this go? Is this working? Isn't it? Because if I did any shorter amount of time, I didn't have enough space to develop those skills that I needed. So I want you to think about this of going, okay, how could I do 12 months? What are the kind of key measures of success for me that I want to get out of that period of time and use that evaluation phase. And then after you do that 12 months, then you can either look at, okay, well, this wasn't right. I'm going to change tack. I'm going to like move over here slightly, or I'm going to make this change, but just try to get to that like milestone in your head, whatever that timeline is. Like I think 12 months is a good one. So if you can aim for that, I think that is ideal but set yourself an evaluation goal. And that's kind of how I like to see career changes. I want you to see it as a process, not as a single decision. Because this is where we make the mistakes. We see it as a single decision, a moment in time, and it's almost never that. It is almost always the process, and the process can take ages. It could be three years. That might not be what you want to hear, Michael, but give yourself time and space to research, to test things out, and then to evaluate. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get in to the final questions. If you want to grow in your career, I just wanted to remind you about our book, Sort Your Career Out and Make More Money. Glenn James and I have written this book to help you with any kind of career crisis, but also those things that you want, like getting a promotion, making more money, moving into a leadership role. Or if it's time to quit your job, you can find our book wherever you get good books from, or you can listen on the audiobook, sort your career out and make more money. Now let's get back to the show. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices Serena says, what questions should you ask in an internal job interview where you know everything about the team, manager and the pay, and you've been doing the job already? I feel like most questions to ask in an interview assume you have little context. Yes, this is a good one. So you're going for an internal role and you don't know what questions to ask in the interview. So the, here's a few good questions you can ask if you're applying for an internal role and you feel like you know all the things already or you're already doing that role. So let's say you've been acting in the role for a while and you're like, "Oh, I don't know how to, what to ask. These questions, you may know the answer to, but still ask them because sometimes when a manager gets asked this, they'll think about it differently or, or we might've made assumptions about what we think they want. And when we pose this question to them directly in the interview format, we get a different answer. So it can be really insightful. Here's a few I've just written down, so I'm just going to read them out. What are your biggest challenges as a manager that you want this role to solve? What do you think the areas of growth for the team are? What would you love to see done differently in this role and team? What kind of mindset or behaviors are most important to you on your team? What do you think I need to learn or focus on in the first six months? So even if you know the answers to some of those questions, still ask them because they're really good questions. And most questions in an interview that go well are either what or how questions. So not why questions, sometimes why questions feel like they might have an element of judgment. So why are you recruiting for this role? Why is this role important to you? Sometimes the tone of a why question can sometimes feel like, There is an accusation built in. But if you use what and how questions, those questions are super open and they can lead to some really good discussions. So that's one of my kind of rules of thumb for any questions you ask in the interview, use what and how questions. And I always think that idea of what do you think I need to learn or focus on in the first six months, if you're an internal, can really help because they know you. And so they can say, okay, well, this is an area I reckon you could focus on. Whereas as an external candidate, they're not going to be able to speak to that because they don't know you. So they don't know what you need to learn. And I love the mindset and behaviors question. So what kind of mindset or behaviors are most important to you on your team? Because I doubt, like I've never had an employee ask me that question and I doubt your manager has. So asking it in an interview can really make you stand out because they're going to be like, oh, cool. This person is interested in not just the technical parts of this role, but they're actually interested in showing up in a way that reflects the culture that we want to create on this team. All right, next question is from Kiri. Hey, Shelley, could you please cover how to highlight transferable skills in your resume and cover letter when you've not previously worked in the industry you're looking to transfer into? I've been a lawyer for 11 years and I naked quit a week ago. So that means quitting without a job to go to. So far, I'm up to 52 applications and 39 rejections and not a single interview. I'm highly qualified with a master's degree, though at the moment, I can't even get over the threshold for an interview for an entry-level admin role. So I feel like I must not be highlighting my transferable skills in my cover letter and resume. Firstly, Kiri, I just want to say this is really tough and getting those rejections, it can be really deflating. So I just want to say a couple of things, like keep going, like keep going but yes, I agree. We need to work out what is it that maybe isn't getting the traction so that the next ones that you're applying for, you're standing out. Firstly, I just want to ask, this is curveball, but have you spoken to a recruiter? Because in legal services as an industry, like it's highly recruiter based. So I'd be encouraging you, you probably already have, but if not, go and find a good local recruiter that you can speak to. So make sure you chat to someone because they can be the difference of getting into that industry that you're trying to get into. So research in that industry, do they use specific recruiters? If so, you need to get in touch with them. That's your step one before you look at your resume. Okay, the next one I want you to do is like look at your cover letter and highlight your career change in there. So spell out what you want in terms of the move because sometimes people can look at it and go, okay, well, this person's a really highly qualified lawyer. And it's done all this stuff. Why are they applying for this role that has no relationship to what their background is? So in your cover letter, you need to spell out what you want, why you're changing, why you're looking at making a move, sell it to be about the company. So go, I'm looking to make a career change in X, Y, and Z, and I'd love to be getting into this industry and specifically this company because, and the really important thing is the because, because I want this, this, and this. Or I see your values are this and it really aligns with my personal values. You need to make that cover letter about the business. Hero them. Hero what's amazing about what they're doing and why you want to be a part of that. And then you talk about after that, the skills that you bring that are transferable, that relate. Now, I think there's a couple of things with skills. We usually focus on micro skills. So let's say things like if you're a lawyer, might be writing term sheets or T's and C's. Whereas I want you to think about the macro or the meta skill set. So the meta skill set of like legal writing, you know, I can tell I'm not a lawyer because I'm saying stuff that probably makes no sense. But the the meta skill set of what you've learned writing as a lawyer is attention to detail and business writing. So make it about that. The meta skill might be business writing. I think a meta skill that a lot of lawyers have is attention to detail. And that translates really well to administrative roles. Because one of the core things that people need in admin roles is a high level of attention to detail. So you need to look at your micro skills that you've built in your career and then go, okay, well, what might be the higher order skill set that sits above that? So if one of your micro skills is public speaking, the meta skill is communication. So that's the thing that sits above it. And under communication, there will be all these micro skills. So it might be communication, public speaking, writing, engaging briefs content creation, whatever. But I just want you to start to think. okay, instead of focusing on the smaller skills that you've built as a lawyer, what are some of the higher order things that you can bring to a role that's totally different? I'll give you an example. I was having a coaching call once with a teacher, Ryan. He's an amazing teacher doing such profound, good work but he was pretty burnt out and he said i really need to make a career change but i don't know how to take my skills as a teacher into a different industry and a different job so we worked out okay well what is the meta skill for him and the meta skill wasn't like the pedagogy that he learned and all those kind of micro things it was he knew how to educate people and he knew how to help people learn So learning, the ability to help others learn, that was the meta skill. And then once we worked that out, we were like, okay, you can apply that skill to so many different jobs. So on his cover letter, as he started applying for different jobs. He was able to take all those skills that he would built as a teacher and sell them in a way to totally different jobs. He ended up in a learning and development specialist role in a government organization, total career change total different industry, but the way that he did it is that he was able to sell his skill in helping people learn. So Kiri, I want you to think about what's your version of that. You need to kind of work out in that particular role that you're applying for, what are the core fundamental skills that they need and how have I already demonstrated that in my career as a lawyer, but I need to sell them as higher order meta skills, not focusing on the micro. If you haven't got a copy of the book, Sort Your Career Out, go and do that because we have a cover letter and resume template in the book that's also going to really help you because it spells out how you structure your cover letter. And it goes into this detail of, hey, start with a bit about the business and then move into how your values and your skills align with that business and what that business needs in that role. So focus on your cover letter and then your resume, make sure you're also capturing those meta skills that relate to the job that you're applying keep me posted because I want to know how you go with this. It's really hard when you're making a big change and you feel the pressure. But Kiri, talk to a recruiter first, step one. And then I want you to get the book, download the cover letter template and totally rework it for each role. So your cover letter needs to be custom to every role. Jelly has asked, tips for employees venturing into entrepreneurial spaces, selling and delivering services online, how to keep startup costs low or free or low-cost apps and resources, when to hire a VA or team members, when to hire a business, when to start scaling and set up as a sole trader or company for admin and legal considerations. All right. I'm not going to go into the admin or legal or sole trader or company stuff. You need to talk to an accountant about that, but I will talk to you about getting started. So there's a couple of things. Glenn James, who is the founder of This Is Money and the whole podcast group said to me, he gave me really good advice early on when I started my business, hire before you feel ready. So when you're like maybe 60, 70% fully booked, then hire. And it'll feel like a bit of a stretch, but talk to your accountant. My accountants were so good when I was like, panicking about bringing someone on. So I bought on my first employee, I don't know, maybe like six months into starting or maybe a bit longer. I can't really remember to be honest, it's all blur. And then I've just bought on another team member of VA and I had this kind of sense of, oh, it feels like a stretch, but I knew I was almost at that kind of capacity. And so I was like, okay, well, if I don't do something now, the wheels will start to fall off. So hire that bit before you feel ready. That's number one how to keep costs low at the beginning is focus. Well, I don't know if it's about how to keep costs low, but I, I was kind of thinking about how do you spend your energy on the most high value activities? So I don't think it's necessarily keeping costs low as much as it is. You only have so much time. And when you're starting a business, you feel like you're working like 24 seven. But what I want you to do is think about how can I focus on revenue generating activities primarily? So for me, that was like, creating content, I suppose, like doing the podcast, posting every day on LinkedIn, Instagram, posting every day. like, And so I really focused on any of that content creation was income generating in the end because that's how we got people and that's how we got seen and got noticed. So I focused a disproportionate amount of time on those activities. And then the other thing in terms of keeping costs low is really focusing on your personal development. So at the beginning, I couldn't afford like a coach Now I have one because we've gotten to that stage where I can afford to have a great coach and really invest in my personal development. But in the early days, like in the first six months, I just listened to nonstop podcasts, read so many business books because I was totally, felt like I was totally out of my depth and I just invested a stack of time in self-development and it was that was free. And so do that, like go, okay, well... I'm going to invest and a low cost way to invest in my personal development is listen to podcasts all the time that relate to what I'm trying to grow in, read way more books on this particular skill that I'm trying to build. And so that time you invest in your personal development and the time that you invest in revenue generating activities will grow your business, will keep those costs low in the early days, but make sure you're generating money. And then you can afford later on to invest in your, your coach who's going to really help you. So that would be my advice starting out jelly. And I just think starting your own business is the biggest self-development journey you'll ever go on. Like it's just wild. So I just want to say, go for it. You will learn more in that first kind of 12 months than you probably ever learned before. And it's the best. I've just loved every, it's been so stressful at times, but the experience of being like, holy crap, I'm out of my depth. I have no idea what I'm doing. It's such a good one. Like it's such a good experience to go through and then you will start to build those muscles of like okay cool I trust my risk-taking judgment now and have someone in your corner like for me Glenn was so helpful of giving me the right advice at the moment that I needed it I want you to also probably find a mentor who can help you in those early phases who's done the thing that you want to do to give you the right input at the right time all right last question is from Katie and this is Tips for those who are new to a leadership role. In the past four months alone, I've had five conversations with friends who are transitioning into their first role as a supervisor and manager. It'll be so helpful to have some tried and tested advice rather than just my anecdotal experience and book recommendations. It'd also be helpful for experienced leaders to hear about the things we might have forgotten or never implemented. Well, Katie, I'm glad you asked. And I have to say, in a few months' time, we're going to be announcing a first-time leaders program. So I'm just going to put that out there. I want to tell you first, it's coming. It's going to be a few months away, but this is going to be good for anyone who wants to nail leadership, especially if you're a first-time leader. So let me tell you a couple of tips for being new to a leadership role. A friend of mine, Rowan Dredge, she said this amazing thing. As a leader, you need to find out what it's like to be on the other side of you. And I think most of our failures as leaders is a lack of self-awareness. So it comes from a lack of self-awareness or a lack of other awareness. We don't know how we are showing up and how that's impacting other people. So if we were to think about that concept that Ro talks about of what is it like to be on the other side of you, And sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, that would be a terrible place to be. But just simply the act of thinking, okay, how am I showing up in this meeting? And what is this experience like for this other person when they're experiencing me? So for example, if you've ever sat in a meeting with your manager and they're on their phone in a one-on-one while you're trying to talk to them, being on the other side of someone who's texting or emailing while you're trying to have a deep conversation is so lonely it's so deflating it feels like you're not important we need to know the things that we do that make people feel like that right and we need to know what it's like to be on the other side of us but because we're in our own heads all the time we don't do that deep work to think about okay how am i showing up and is this a reflection of what i want to be known for so find out what is it like to be on the other side of you now here's how to do that you need to ask for feedback from your employees. So ask them to give you feedback. You could also, Adam Grant talks about asking for advice instead of feedback. So the way you could frame this, if you're new to leadership and you haven't done this before, is in your next one-on-one, you could ask your team members a couple of questions. The first question you could ask them is, hey, tell me about a manager you loved working for and why? And tell me about a boss you struggled with and why? So you start to get a sense of what do they like and what do they dislike? Because understanding that can help you work out, okay, what style is going to get the best out of this person and what style of leadership is not going to work for this person. And I can guarantee you, they're going to be different for each person. So some people like you to be really direct with feedback, and other people won't need that level of directness that they'll get it when it's more subtle. So just working those things through and understanding what works and what doesn't work for each team member when it comes to leadership. A couple of other things. I want you to get the team together in the first month of you starting. But if you've already started, it doesn't really matter. You can do this at any time. But it's really good if you do it early on into your leadership journey. But get your team together. And as a group, define the non-negotiable behaviors. So what are the non-negotiable ways of behaving on this team? So this becomes kind of like your baseline. And the way I do it, I ask these three questions. What are the behaviors we must have? What are the behaviors we can't have? And what are the behaviors that are nice to have? So for example, let's say one of the behaviors that you must have is honesty. And maybe one of the nice to have behaviors is confidence. If someone shows up on the team and they're confident, but they're not honest, that doesn't work. It's like, you have to be honest first. Like confidence is nice to have. But you can't be confident on this team without being honest first. So this is why we get people to kind of define them and categorize them into these three groups. So you can workshop this as a group, get everyone to put their thoughts in, and everyone's going to have different ideas of what behaviors we must have, we can't have, and are nice to have. The reason why it's really important to define it is that once you define it and agree on it as a collective, everyone buys in. So setting these expectations with your team is really powerful, and it tells your team, that you value their input and you want them to shape the culture that you're creating. The next thing that I want you to do is to get into the habit of admitting when you don't know. So as a first time leader, I I talked about before that becoming a business owner is like the biggest self-development journey, but I think probably equal to that is becoming a leader for the first time. It is like a huge self-development journey and it's a pretty thankless job especially in the early days where you're like, have no idea what you're doing. You're like, oh my gosh, I just feel like every day I'm like messing this up. And that's normal. But I think what will help you is vulnerability and being open to say, hey, I'm not sure about this direction. I'd love your input. Or hey, I'm learning. I'm new to this and I'm going to do this journey with you and I'd love your feedback and I'm going to give you feedback as well. So just being really open about where you're at can be helpful, but don't undermine your own skills. So there's a there's this not, like little line with vulnerability where it can tip into self-criticism. I don't want you to like undermine your own skills, but what I do want you to do is to be able to be comfortable enough to admit when you don't know or that you don't have all the answers. I think where new leaders really stuff up is when they think that they need to have it all together and that they need to be the expert on everything. And what that does, when someone comes into a team and you would have seen this, you've probably worked for a leader like this where they come in and they're a know-it-all and that erodes trust. It doesn't, it's funny because it's kind of counterintuitive. We think knowing everything will build trust, but actually it detracts from trust because people are like, you can't possibly know it all. You're brand new (laughs) to leadership. (laughs) So I want you to walk in with a humble and vulnerable mindset, but be careful not to go into self-criticism mode. I want you to also really, in the first three months, focus on nailing your one on one meetings. So, I recommend to any leaders that we work with, we work with stacks of leaders all around the country. And one of the things that we do as a priority, number one priority for kicking off as a new leader, is focus on running good one on ones. So, one on one is that kind of check in that you have with that one employee. And Marcus Buckingham's research into one-on-ones found that weekly and fortnightly one-on-one check-ins increase team performance. But if you do it monthly or less, it actually decreases performance. So I want you to be scheduling a weekly or fortnightly one-on-one. It might be 15 minutes, might be half an hour. And I want you to focus on a few things. You can ask these questions. How are you feeling? What are you working on? What are your roadblocks? And how can I help? And the last question you might add in, which I find really helpful, is what are you committing to get done between now and next time we meet? So those are kind of like the questions that I would have as a running agenda for a one-on-one. And I would make sure you're present, you're not checking your phone, you're not on emails, you're listening actively to that person, and you make a priority of that time. That is like the most trust-building exercise you can do. And trust is probably the thing that you want to focus on most in the early days, like just focus on building trust and your one-on-ones. And running good, effective conversations with your employees is a huge part of that. And the only other thing I'd ask you to do in the kind of first few months of starting is hit your team up and ask them how they like to give and receive feedback. So talk to them about that question. Say, I'd love to know, how do you like to give and receive feedback? List out their preferences because it just gives you insight into whenever you have to give feedback to them about something that is or isn't working you can make sure that you're kind of aligning it to the style that works for them. So that Katie would be my tips for new leaders. Also, there's a really good episode that Shane Hatton and I did a while ago about stepping into a leadership role. So go back and listen to that, share it with a friend. Hey, I just want to say thank you for all your questions, putting your questions in the Facebook community. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating on Spotify or Apple, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm Shelley Johnson, and this is work. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we live and work and pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to this podcast. Before you do anything meaningful with your money, you need to be able to control your money. I can help. The Glen James Spending Plan is a complete spending plan budgeting system that will show you how to manage your money. It includes a downloadable spreadsheet that will tell you how much to put into what account each week and you will get control over your money within two pay cycles. Thousands of people have used the Glen James Spending Plan, and it is now free. So download the Glen James Spending Plan and enroll today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50